start at verse 19. The Apostle Paul writes this, The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited provoking and envying each other. The fruit of the Spirit we've been looking at. And um, I, I felt last, not, last week, it was a sobering, sobering message, a sobering list. Sometimes it's very sobering and it's good to be sobered and look at the details, the specifics of what godly character looks like. Now understand, the book of Galatians is primarily a letter that Paul has written to call the Galatians back to the truth of the doctrine of the gospel. What it is, what is this good news that Christians talk about when they talk about the gospel? Literally, that word means good news. What is the good news? These people in Galatia had originally believed that good news, and they had been brought into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ by believing the good news that he lived and died in the place of sinners and offered salvation to those who put their faith in him and in that work. The Galatians had believed that it had brought great joy and life to them. But then Paul had left, some other teachers came in and started teaching that they had to earn God's favor by the way they lived, by the things that they did. And it began to have a lot of effects, really negative effects, in their life. And Paul writes this letter to straighten them out. What is the true doctrine that deserves to be called good news? The idea that God tells you what to do and then you say, great, I'll do it, is not good news. Because you can't do it. The good news is that Jesus lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we deserve to die because we didn't live the life we were supposed to live. And that good news has radical implications for the way you love and the way you live. And we've gotten now to chapter 5 in Galatians, and Paul is laying out, listen, there are basically two ways you can live. You can gratify yourself, which is to basically say you can try to live to be your own savior, or you can live trusting in Jesus and what he did for you. The one way living to be your own savior is slavery. And it doesn't matter whether you pursue it in a religious way, trying to be a good person to keep all the rules, it's still slavery. And it produces things like envy and factions and bitterness, provoking one another. Or what Paul elsewhere in this letter calls biting and devouring one another. All of those kinds of things that you, that you taste if you've ever been part of a church where the gospel is not preached very clearly, or where it's not believed, where people think that what makes them you know, God's people is the things they do, it always has those kinds of effects in the life of that group of people. But then there's another sort of irreligious way of trying to be your own savior. And it's basically thumbing your nose at God and saying, God, I don't need you 
to tell me what to do. I'm going to decide what I am. You reject salvation by grace by saying, I don't need anybody to help me out. I'm going to do what I want to do. And that leads to all kinds of ways. But Paul is saying that's one way to live. Those two things that look like different ways to live, being a nice, good religious person or being a hellion, are really two sides of the same coin. It's the way of life that says I'm rejecting Christ and his salvation. That's what Paul said. That's one way to live. And he describes that as the, the sinful nature, which seeks to justify itself, either by keeping the rules or by making the rules. Two ways of trying to justify yourself. The opposite of that, Paul describes as living by the Spirit or keeping in step with the Spirit. And he says that that this will produce certain effects in your life as well. He calls it the fruit of the Spirit. And we've been looking at this. And I made the point two weeks ago when I first started on the fruit of the Spirit that it is fruit, not fruits. And a lot of times Christians look at this list and content themselves if they find one or two of these things in the list of the fruit of the Spirit that they feel that they have in their character, but often we can have one or two of these just by temperament, just by the way we've sort of learned to live in this world. It's not necessarily been produced by the Spirit of God. It's not something that's grown because of our trust in Christ. It's something that we, that we basically put on or manufacture to make people think that we're trusting in Christ, maybe. But it's not the real, the real fruit. So we've been talking about this, and I did, I did three things. And here's the heart of what I want you to get from the fruit of the Spirit. As we go through the, the fruit in detail, it's this. What we're talking about in the fruit of the Spirit, this list here, is that godly character can be seen and should be seen. Godly character can and should be seen. And while it's a very sobering thing to look at a list like this, I want you to know it should be a very encouraging thing to look at this list as well. Because this is what God is committed to making you. This is what God is committed to making His church and His people. A community where love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, where these things are evident and where these things flourish. But what you need to understand is it's important that you understand the engine that drives this kind of living, kind of life, kind of character is the gospel. You see... Paul and the false teachers that have brought in this sort of false gospel, they both agreed that you should live this way. Love, joy, kind, all that. They, they both agree you should live that way. The difference is what will produce that kind of life. And Paul says that the doctrine of trying your best and your own willpower and doing all the right things will never produce this actual fruit. This kind of fruit is only produced by relying upon Jesus and what he's done for you. This fruit is gospel character described. But gospel character, character created by putting your hope and trust in God rather than yourself. Where does the faith come from? Where does the fruit come from? It comes from the Spirit. And it comes uh, ultimately by the Spirit showing us Jesus and what he's done for us. In other words... If you just look at this fruit and you say, oh, man, I just learned a bunch of more things that I need to do. And you walk out of here tonight saying, man, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. I need to do this. and I need to do that. It's not going to actually happen in your life. The law, Paul says in Romans 8, is powerless. Because it's been weakened by the sinful nature. It doesn't have the power 
to create what it demands. The law, we can read this list like the law. Here's what, and it is. Godly character is what the law describes. This is how God wants you to live. But the law can't create it. And so when you look at a list like this, it's important that you understand this is what Jesus was like. And it's not just enough for you to say Jesus is the model for personal behavior. And that's wonderful to know. No, this is the life that Jesus lived for his people. In other words, you don't just look at Jesus and say, wow, isn't it great that he was so long-suffering? I wish I could be like that. Wouldn't that be great if I could be so long-suffering? Well, it is great that Jesus is long-suffering, but what makes it really good news tonight, instead of just being this impossible model that you could never follow, what makes it good news is that Jesus is long-suffering towards his people who need his patience. What, what makes it good news is that, that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning, despising its shame, as the book of Hebrews says. See, what's good for you is not just that Jesus had joy, but that Jesus had joy in bringing salvation to you, even though it cost him the joy of this perfect fellowship that he had with his father, right? What makes it good news for you is to understand this describes Jesus, but it doesn't just describe Jesus as a model. It describes Jesus as he lived and loved and died for his people. So I want you to understand that. Um, There's a passage in Romans 5 that talks about this, how the gospel produces this sort of stuff, this fruit of the Spirit, this character, this perseverance, this hope, this joy, this peace. It's a very similar list there, and it's made even more explicit. It's the gospel believed that does this. So what does the gospel believed look like in our life? We'll go down the list and and take a few more of these tonight. Patience or long-suffering. What is this fruit called patience or long-suffering? What is this aspect of gospel character called patience or the old King James word that I love so much, long-suffering? It means this. It's the ability to take trouble from life and from other people without being destroyed. It's a patient endurance under injuries inflicted by others. Long-suffering is a very picturesque word, and it's a good word to describe this. The first thing you need to understand when when you see a word like this, you need to realize Christians suffer. If part of gospel character is is long-suffering, well, one of the implications in that is that Christians suffer. Um, you know, one of, one of the Puritans had, had a picturesque way of saying this, that, you know, most, most flowers don't actually release their fragrance until you crush them. And, and so it is with godly character. It's often in the crushing that it's manifest. If, if God is to be glorified by long-suffering, well, suffering is to be expected for God's people. And I put some passages here if you don't believe that. Now, unfortunately, there are actually Christian leaders and Christian teachers, you can watch them on the cable TV all the time, who deny this very reality. That, that say that basically if you have enough faith, if you really have faith and gospel character, you won't have suffering in your life. And if you have suffering, it's because you don't have enough faith or you haven't used the right words to claim the blessings that God wants to give you. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Um, One of the Puritans, John Trapp, put it this way. I always love this quote. He said, one son 
hath God without sin, but none without suffering. If you follow a crucified Savior, how can you possibly expect to have a life without suffering? God brings great glory out of the long-suffering of his people. It's this. It's it's patience. Patience lived out in obedience to God in the midst of pressure to deny him. It's a refusing to look for a quick out because Jesus never took a quick out when he had the opportunity. So that's what it is. That's what patience or long-suffering is. Now, for each of these fruits, there's a counterfeit fruit that we can basically wump up by our own temperament or by our own willpower. And it's important to, to, to describe it briefly because a lot of times this is what's masquerading as the fruit and making us think that we really are believing the gospel. The counterfeit fruit is this, enduring hardship through sheer willpower or by shutting off emotionally. Long-suffering is not being a stoic. Christianity is not stoicism. I'll say it again. Christianity is not stoicism. Really, um, you know, there's important to ask the question when you're enduring and you feel like you're enduring suffering and you're doing well and you should be applauded for how well you're doing. The question you need to ask is, what's your motive? Are you enduring suffering because to actually admit that you're suffering would be to invite questions that you don't want to face? And so you would rather just pretend that you can rise above it and then congratulate yourself that you must be wonderfully mature because you don't seem to be bothered by suffering? What's your motive? Is it because you're really scared spitless about the questions that suffering may provoke? Are, are, you, suff- are you enduring by your willpower because you want the praise of other people? You want to be thought a mature person, a reliable, solid person? Or is it to see the kingdom of God move forward in you and in the world? See, long-suffering, the Christian character of long-suffering is always connected with wanting to see the kingdom of God come. And, and, And it's a very different thing. See, We live in a world that thinks that pain can have no purpose and should be avoided at all costs or if it has to happen, we need to get out of it as quickly as possible. But the Bible has a very different view of that. Christian patience is not stoicism. It does not deny hurt. It's the ability to trust God in spite of all the evidence that he's abandoned you. Because Christian patience, long-suffering, is the gospel believed. In other words, Christian patience, Christian long-suffering, takes as the defining reality of all of the reality that exists, Jesus died on a cross. So even though I'm suffering, it can't be that God abandoned me because God abandoned Jesus. All the abandonment that I deserved, Jesus took. So Christian long-suffering is patience that knows that God is not abandoning me, even though it may seem like it is. I know that he can't be abandoning me because he abandoned Jesus in my place, right? And that gets at this thing. There's always a weed that threatens to choke out this fruit growing 
in your life? What is it that makes patience get choked out in our life? And it's basically this, impatience with God's timetable. The reason that we find it so difficult to to see Christian patience grow in our lives is we think we know better than God. There's always this, this pride that makes suffering difficult. We resent what God is doing because we don't see the picture. But the, the problem is the big picture, but we think we do. We think we do. You can't have Christian patience, in other words, without humility. Without humility. Faith is always connected to long-suffering. Now, we are not to give up our hunger for justice. The Bible says this um, in, in Romans 12, for instance. We are not to deny that real hurt happens. We are not to deny that people, Christians, get grievously sinned against in this world. And a lot of people have grown up in churches where they're made to think that if you're a good Christian, then you would never, you'd never admit that, that you're only supposed to think about your own sin. That's not true. Every person in this world is both a sinner and has been sinned against. And again, this is not stoicism. This patience is not you denying that you've ever been hurt, but it's crying out to God in the midst of it and being able to trust him, the one who says, vengeance is mine. I will wipe away every tear. I will make everything right. Long-suffering is long-suffering in hope that God will make things right one day. It's not just killing your hope that things will ever be made right and trying to make the best of it. That's stoicism. Christian patience is always in hope and faith that God is who he says he is and he will do what he says he'll do. So how does this fruit grow in us? Well, it's, it's really produced in this settled, by this settled peace that the gospel brings. That when it may look like I'm being abandoned, I know that I can't be abandoned because Jesus lived and died in my place. If Jesus didn't abandon me, when abandoning me would have gotten him off the cross. See, Jesus could have climbed down off the cross. He had the power to do that. He said himself, I could call down legions of angels and end this whole thing right now. And if he didn't do that, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the, the, the wondering, where, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If he didn't do it then, he won't do it now. Now that he's risen and even now is seated at the right hand of the Father in glory and in majesty. He's not going to abandon you. And, and that has to begin to work its way into your soul. It's why we sing songs about our glorious hope. It's why when we sing a song like Cling to the Crucified, the, the reason I love that text is because it, it says, don't you, it, it's not just bare commands. Cling to the crucified, cling to the crucified. Say it again and again and again until you, until you believe it. No, it keeps directing you to who, the one that, that we serve, the one that we derive great encouragement from knowing what he's like. He's the faithful one. He's the mighty one, right? He's the suffering one. And so... This doctrine, you know, of understanding who God is and what he's done for us is, is the only thing that can actually begin to produce this fruit of patience in us. I love this quote by John Sanderson. He wrote a great little book on the fruit of the Spirit, if you ever want to study this more in depth. He said, faith is an ingredient of patience. Christian patience is based on the belief that a sovereign God is at work in men's affairs, and it springs from the expectancy that a believer will not be mocked or forgotten by the God whose keeping he has committed his soul. 
Listen to this. Just as the weed of impatience grows in an atmosphere which leaves God out of our thinking, so the fruit of the Spirit, which is patience, grows where there is a continual awareness of God. Faith is, is, is vital for understanding patience. How about kindness? Kindness, this is one that you probably don't need too much on the definition. It's basically the meeting of felt needs, real physical needs that people have, loving our neighbors in tangible ways. But what's the artificial fruit? What's the thing that makes us think that we have it when maybe we don't? It's manipulating others through our kindness. Good deeds that lead to self-congratulation and self-righteousness. Kindness that quickly turns to hatred and resentment when it's not noticed and praised either by God or other people. See, a good test for whether you actually are really a kind person or whether you're just a self-righteous person who likes to think you're kinder than everybody else is, how do you feel when your good deeds don't seem to be appreciated? Don't you hate that? Don't you hate it when people don't notice how nice you're being and the kind things you've done for them? Maybe you don't care if other people notice as long as you are sure that God notices. See, that's not the Christian, that's not the fruit of the spirit of kindness. That's an attempt to build your own kingdom and your own righteousness by doing good deeds. And it's not actually flowing out of faith. It's an attempt to get God on your side. Right. Um, I mean, you know, we all know this, right? It's so much easier to do nice things for attractive people. We do it. I'll tell you, I'll speak to the guys here, and the, girl, the ladies will back me up on this. You know, you ever notice how quick guys are to help out pretty girls? Let me tell you, all the girls notice that. And you know what it does? It actually has two effects. Number one, they think you're shallow. But number two, if you ever do something for them, they're going to wonder, is it just because he thinks I'm pretty? In other words, it actually ends up making them even more insecure because, well, he's still do nice things for me when I'm not pretty. Every girl has that fear. And, and so this kind of artificial fruit of kindness is not just, it's not just that it's a shame that real kindness isn't there. It actually ends up being destructive of true community and of trust. Uh, Jack Miller, a guy who's, um, who, who was a mentor of mine sort of from afar and a spiritual hero, certainly, used to say one of, one of the things he loved to go around and say was that niceness will kill a church. Niceness will kill a church. There's this kind of sort of pseudo-kindness that exists in Christian groups where nobody can actually be real or honest or ever confront anybody about anything. Nobody knows or can give a life-giving rebuke that just will kill a church. It'll never be what it's meant to be. This artificial fruit is not just, it's not just, you know, that we're missing the real fruit. We end up actually undermining Christian community. And I think the weed that chokes out real kindness in our lives, as opposed to this false kind of kindness, is basically self-righteousness and selfishness, which is rooted in pride. We seek our own pleasure because we think that we matter most. What can God do to help us in the midst of that? And again, the answer is the gospel. The gospel is the thing that says to you, you deserve death and hell. Why do you think that everybody in this world exists to pat you on the back and tell you how wonderful you were? The cross is the only true measure 
of who you are, and it says that you deserve death and hell, but that God, who is rich in mercy and grace, saved you when you deserve death and hell and has secured you in his love, right? So, in other words, you have such an overabundance of love and peace and security that's been given to you in the gospel. You may not know it because you don't believe very much of it, but it's true. You have so much extra love beyond what you need that you don't need to be continually trying to get praise from other people. You've got plenty of grace and goodwill to spare. You don't need to use it all to try and secure your place with God. Do you see what I'm saying? It's only when, the, when you really realize that Jesus has done so much more than you need to secure your relationship with the Father that you don't need to use all of your, your time that you have to do kind deeds. You don't need to use it to justify yourself. Jesus has already justified you. Right? This is the way Christians are supposed to think about this. And therefore, the way that you, that you fight against this selfishness is to look at the cross and, and to say, Jesus has shown me kindness, real kindness. Jesus has shown me real kindness expressed to an enemy. Uh, may that begin to melt our hearts so that we can begin to show kindness to other people. Humility is what produces kindness is what I'm saying. And the cross is the only thing that can bring real humility. Uh, This is what Jesus is talking about in the Good Samaritan parable, right? What he basically is saying in that parable, the guy comes to him and says, you know, who's my neighbor? (laughs) Who's my neighbor? He says, basically, you know, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, my soul. Yeah, good. I've done that. Um, And and, and love your neighbor as yourself. Yep, I've done that. Um, and, 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 you know, in this conversation with Jesus, you know, he basically says, yeah, I've done that, but come on, Jesus, who is my neighbor? In other words, he tries to, he tries to qualify this call to love other people as a way to justify himself. He, he basically has to limit who he's called to love to something that seems reasonable. So he has to limit the kinds of neighbors he's called to love. And Jesus tells this story, the Good Samaritan. A lot of times we read that story as a way of saying, well, we, th- we think of you know, that Jesus is telling the story to basically say, you should be like the Samaritan. In actuality, I think what Jesus is saying by that parable is, I'm the good Samaritan. I'm the one who came to you when you were bleeding by the side of the road. I'm the one who picked you up and took you to a safe place. I'm the one who pledged myself, whatever it costs, I'll make good for this person to the innkeeper to say, I want this person to be healed. I'm the one who risked my life, didn't just risk my life, but gave my life so that you could be restored, right? Jesus is saying, until you understand that you're the social outcast who has no ability to save yourself, you'll never be able to love your neighbor. You'll never be able to love in a lavish way that's not always trying to restrict who is it that I have to love and how much. The only way that you're going to get broken free from that is to realize who loved you. And how much? And to sit in that until it begins to to break down your selfishness. Goodness and faithfulness. Goodness and faithfulness. Definition. Really, these two I put together because they're both ways of talking about integrity. Being the same thing in all situations. Goodness is honesty and transparency. Faithfulness is loyalty and courage. It's being principle-driven, committed, utterly reliable, and true to one word. 
What's the artificial fruit? The artificial fruit that masquerades as this, especially in churches, is truth without love. Um, we, we think, well, faithfulness, being a faithful friend, means getting stuff off my chest whenever it suits me. Um, and that's what it means to be a faithful friend. And goodness, of course, means never telling anybody anything that would hurt their feelings. <laughs> you know? Now, in actuality, both of those are denials of what's asked for here or described here, which is integrity, being driven by something deeper than what people think about you. The weed, basically, is that you need to protect yourself because no one else will. This is what seems to choke out goodness and integrity and faithfulness. You see, here's the issue. Here's the funny thing. You know, the phoniness and hypocrisy that we hate is produced, produced by this feeling that you have to protect yourself. You see it in everybody else. I see it in everybody else. But what causes me to be phony and hypocritical is basically this need to protect myself and to keep my reputation unspoiled. And the fact is, I will never be able to achieve what I long for and what I demand in other people until I understand that I don't have to protect myself. Until I understand that Jesus secured the love of God for me and I can't do anything to mess that up, I'll never be able to be honest with you or with anybody else or myself. Right? In other words, it's our commitment to stay safe at all costs which drives us to be two-faced because we're trying to keep everybody happy, right? So it's this vicious cycle. The only thing that can help us is for the, the truth of the gospel to break in and set us free to say, I don't, need to, I don't need to keep all these balls in the air juggling everybody liking me. The God of the universe rejoices over me with singing. It says that in the Bible, you know. Zephaniah 3.17, go read it. God rejoices over you with singing. You don't have to make everybody like you. Right? Gentleness or meekness. Definition. Gentleness and meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is the ability to put yourself under someone for their good. To t- it, it, it really requires a great deal of strength of character and security. Uh, it, it, it's not weakness at all. Um, the artificial fruit, of course, what a lot of Christians think it means to be meek and be gentle. And unfortunately, in a lot of Christian circles, this is what women are told they need to be, is basically pushovers. The artificial fruit is basically letting people walk all over you. And in so many circles, that's what's held up as the Christian character, the fruit of gentleness, meekness. That's not what it is at all. And again, gentleness and faithfulness have to go together. The gentleness that's been described here can also be described as faithfulness or courage. So it's not being a pushover. Gentleness is not being a pushover. It's being humble enough to say, I can can lower myself 
for your good. It's putting other people first. How, how, does this, how does this fruit get cultivated? Well, again, the gospel is what produces this. The gospel is the only thing that can produce in you both humility and boldness. The gospel produces humility because when you look at the cross, how can you flatter yourself? You might think, well, I needed a helping hand, but I'm really not a bad guy. And then you look at the cross. Jesus said, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass. In other words, if all you needed was a helping hand, why did he die a torturous death? God did not cause Jesus to suffer any more than he needed to. So you can never flatter yourself when you look at the cross. I can never flatter myself when I look at the cross. I deserved a torturous death for offending God and for rebelling against the one who lovingly made me, refusing to own his allegiance and love him back, right? But the gospel also brings boldness. The the book of Hebrews says that what Jesus did allows us to come boldly before the throne of God. He has secured access. We get in. We're not on the outside trying to peer in. You know, we're not sort of around this little circle of friends and we're trying to break into the little circle, as awkward as that is. No, we get in. We're welcomed in. God sees and says, come right in here. All the longings you have for home and home-cooked meals and, 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 and the safety and security of that is what the gospel brings you. We get access. We're welcomed into the beloved the relationship, the love between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus actually prays in his high priestly prayer that the love that the Father has for the Son, and the Father, that we would know that, that we would experience that. Wow. So that gives you boldness to say, look, I can tell you the truth because my security is found in what Jesus has done for me. And I don't have to tell you the truth in a way to make myself win. I can tell you the truth with tears in my eyes, longing for you to change, longing for you to come to life because I don't need your approval. You can't love somebody if you're dependent upon their approval for life. You can't. You can't love somebody if you're dependent and you have to have their approval for your life. But the gospel sets you free to love Because the gospel gives you the approval you need in the deepest part of your being. And that gets us to the last one, self-control. The definition. And this is the one that just rocked my world, right? Because I thought I was so wonderfully mature with self-control. I didn't realize that I had no joy and therefore it wasn't really the fruit of self-control. It was just this stoicism. The definition is basically the ability to choose the important thing over the urgent thing. The ability to choose the glory of God over the desires of the sinful nature that comes from an inner strength produced by the gospel. See, the gospel actually changes your priorities. The gospel is the good news that changes everything, including what you hope for and what you regret, what you live for. What's the artificial fruit? Well, you've heard me talk about it, but I want to make this point about it. A lack of self-control is always connected to our idolatry, I put a verse here in Philippians. You can look at that. What it means is you have to beware of trying to deal with one idol like gluttony by using another idol like willpower or vanity. A lot of times we think that what's being produced in us is Christian character when we're really using one idol to hold down another. In other words, telling yourself, 
you know, I'm fat, I need to quit eating. <laughs> and, and just using your willpower and trying to beat yourself up over it be, and basically appealing to your pride. Or in other words, like we do this all the time, basically with kids. And Wendy and I will tell you, it's very hard not to do this, to say, um, hey, we don't lie. You know, we don't lie. We don't do that. And, and basically to appeal to their, to their pride or to their self-righteousness. But the reason that they lie most of the time is because they don't want to be exposed. And then we end up sort of giving them an incentive to, to lie some more by giving sort of like feeding this other idol. Do you know what I'm saying? In other words, we, we sort of pump them up. You're wonderful. You're great. And, um, and we don't lie. We're not like those people outside that lie. We don't lie. Um, and then when they're tempted to lie, why is it? Well, so that the illusion won't be burst the, and, and they would actually find out that we're not really that different from the people outside. Does, does that make sense? So we do this in Christian circles all the time. We use one idol to deal with another idol. Maybe we don't, um, you know, maybe we don't look at pornography, but we're very self-righteous about that. You know, and, and, and so we, we may think, and, and I'm glad if you're not looking at pornography, but... I'm not glad if you're self-righteous and you're not concerned about self-righteousness, right? So, the, so you know, this self-control doesn't just sort of use an idol to hold down another idol. That's not self-control. That's sort of the false root. And that's what I was doing. I was basically using my willpower and using my fear of feeling things to, to, to sort of hold down, you know, my desires. And, and, anyway, it, it's... Uh, I think it's really interesting, you know, that one of the greatest idols we have is sort of this stoical self-control. And, you know, Tim Keller made this amazing point, which I just want to share with you to think about, reflect on. He says that most of our parents were stoics. Most of our parents were stoics. Really, I would say your grandparents were stoics. Your parents, um, in a lot of ways, well, what he says is religious parents often have stoic kids Stoic parents have Epicurean kids, kids who, who believe eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And Epicurean parents produce kids who are dying without direction and often return to religion. And it's very interesting if you think about the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, and you can see this sort of generational thing go on where sort of, you know, our, our grandparents don't even want to ever let you see them shed a tear. You just don't do that, sort of that great generation. But then the, those, the, the kids that grew up under sort of that sense of, I can never feel anything, a lot of them just went crazy in the 60s. <laughs> and yet, you know, it's so interesting how so many of these parents who raised kids basically not wanting to, well, I saw this crazy model one time on the Oprah show who basically had her kids, like their bedroom was a padded cell so that they could just do whatever they wanted and there'd be no possibility they could be hurt. And I just remember thinking... <laughs> Boy, those kids are going to be screwed up one day because kids need some kind of direction. And if they don't get it from their parents because their parents feel like it's not really something we should do because I sure don't want to tell them what to do like my parents did. Well, then you get kids that just have no idea how they're supposed to live. And you see a whole generation of this kind of directionless um, kind of world. So that's that's the damage that sort of this false fruit of stoicism can create. Now, you don't want to turn around and then just, you know, say, well, I'm not going to be like my parents who are always just, you know, jump, tracing after every whim. Whatever they felt like doing, they did. And who cares who got hurt in the process? 
A lot of people, a lot of people in this room or your friends have been hurt by that kind of childishness from the parental generation, right? Um, but you don't want to turn around and then just say, well, I'm just going to not let people, you know, I'm basically never going to be concerned about my heart or my desires or anything. I'm just going to, I'm just going to tough it out. It just will create that cycle all over again. The, uh, the fruit of the Spirit is produced by the gospel. The gospel is what allows you to feel things even when they're scary because you know that, that God is still big enough for that. And that's what I had to finally come to understand. God is big enough for what if. What if I feel this thing? What if I start crying and I don't know how to stop? God's big enough for that, right? Well, let's pray together.